0: And Samuel had all Israel come before by tribes, the tribe of Benjamin was taken by lot. Then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan, and Matris clan was taken. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was taken. But when he looked for him, he was not to be found. So they inquired further of the Lord, "Has the Lord has a man come here yet?" And the Lord said, "Yes, He's hidden himself among the supplies." They ran and brought him out. And as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. That's twice that's been mentioned. Samuel said to all the people, do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. Then the people shouted, long live the king. Samuel explained to the people the rights and duties of kingship. He wrote them down on a scroll and deposited it before the Lord. Then Samuel dismissed the people to go to their own homes. Saul went also went to his home in Gibeah accompanied by valiant men whose hearts God had touched. But some scoundrels said, how can this fellow save us? They, dis, they despised him and brought him no gifts. But Saul kept silent. Now, Samuel, of course, already knows who God has chosen. But it's important that the community be involved in choosing who will lead them. So they go through the process of casting lots. This is a way that... Um, the, uh, um, you know, the, the community, the Old Testament community chose leaders. Uh, the, 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 umen and theorem being a way of asking God yes or no questions, and then throwing, you know, throwing dice, believing that the Lord would control the falling of the, the lots. So, um. This is this. This is actually the way the church chose the replacement for Judas, and it, to this day, it's the way that the I think the Ethiopian Orthodox Church chooses their leader, that a a blindfolded child chooses one of three um, um, names from a hat to to choose who would be their next leader. So. So the, the, the public decision has been made that Saul is the guy, but Saul's still not really so sure he wants to do this. He does not sure he wants this job. He's hiding in the supplies. But they go and drag him out, and Samuel permit, presents him to the people as God's choice for the kingship. And he lays out the, um, you know, the responsibilities and rights of being a king. But Saul still, Saul's kingship, his reign, still isn't a done deal yet. He had gathered a group of you know, loyal followers who recognized his leadership. Verse 28 says, Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, accompanied by valiant men whose hearts God had touched. But sorry, uh, 26. Uh, but then there was also others who didn't recognize it. Verse 27, but some scoundrels said, how can they, this fellow save us? They despised him and brought, a, brought him no gifts. So Saul received a Secret call from God. Just between him and God. Something that he knows is true. And he's also been chosen by the community as king. Or more accurately, the community has sought God about who should be king. And the process has led them to Saul. But he's still not king. Not really. Despite people calling out, long live the king, he still has to prove himself worthy of the crown. In order for that to happen, he actually has to start doing kingly things. And that's what happens in chapter 11. Verse 1 of chapter 11. I told you we were going to read lots of big chunks of scripture. Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all, Sorry, I skipped something here. And all the men of Jabesh said to him, Make a treaty with us, and we will be subject to you. But Nahash the Ammonites replied, I will make a treaty with you only on the condition that I gouge out your right eye of every one of you and so bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of of Jabesh said to him, give us seven days so we can send messengers throughout Israel. If no one comes to rescue us, we will surrender to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and reported these terms to the people, they all wept aloud. Just then Saul was returning from the fields behind his oxen. And he asked, what's wrong with everybody? Why are they weeping? weeping? Then they repeated to him what the men of Jabesh had said. Then Saul heard, when Saul heard the words, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him and he burned with anger. He took a pair of oxen, cut them into pieces and sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel, proclaiming, this is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. Then the terror of the Lord fell on the people and they went, came out together as one. When Saul mustered them at Bezek, the men of Israel numbered three hundred thousand, and those of Judah thirty thousand. Verse eleven. The next verse eleven. Yeah. Um, the next day, Saul separated his men into three divisions. During the last watch of the night, they broke into the camp of the Ammonites and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. Okay, just as an aside. Um, some of you know that I've been doing research on the large numbers that appear in various places in the Old Testament. Some of you might think I've been obsessed with it for the last month. <laughs> I've done all this research, got these papers, done these all. Cal- I've got spreadsheets to do calculations. Anyway, <clears throat> those of you who know me would not be at all surprised. I have a spreadsheet that does that. Anyway. Uh, So it turns out that the word translated thousand in the Old Testament and here where it talks about 300,000 and 30,000 is the same word that was translated clan in the passage we just read in chapter 10, verse 19 where Samuel tells the Israelites to come forward by their tribes and clans. It's the same word. Now a clan is bigger than a family but smaller than a tribe. And in military context, that word is often translated as "troop." Which is a group of men, men about about a group of about ten men. What in today's military terms would be called a squad. So this passage is a military context. So I'm suggesting to you that Saul did not raise a force of 330,000 men in less than a week. It took Vladimir Putin months to raise that many men, with um, a full state structure in place. Rather, what happened was Saul raised 300 troops of men from Judah, and sorry, from Israel, and 30 troops of men from uh, Judah. So about 3,300 men, not 330,000. Those of you with any military experience will recognise that as three battalions or a brigade, and you can conceivably march a force that size through the night and surprise the enemy camp at dawn. Try and do that with a force of a third of a million, and they would hear you coming from miles away. Um, just a thought. It's one one of these things where the um, the reason it's translated as a thousand is because we get that from the Masoretic text from Medi- you know, medieval period where when they started putting vowels in the uh, in the Old Testament Hebrew, and it's probably wrongly vocalized. Anyway, it help I mention that because um, one of the uh I'm very much interested in apologetics, in defending scripture to unbelievers. And the huge numbers that are cited in the Old Testament are one of the reasons why some people um, claim that the uh, scripture isn't reliable. But we do believe that scripture is inspired by God. That, doesn't, that means that the originals are inspired by God, not necessarily our translations. So if that's, I, I think that's a wrong translation. Okay, leave that to one side. But I could not mention that after having spent the last month looking at these numbers, okay? All right, so back to Saul. Saul always seems to be on the outside of the main events in this whole narrative, right? When Samuel was preparing him to anoint, preparing to anoint him with oil, Saul was out looking for donkeys. When the people were ready to choose him as king, Saul was hiding in the baggage. And when there is a crisis in Jabesh-Gilead, Saul is out plowing in the fields. He's been anointed, He's been chosen, but he's yet to do anything remotely kingly. Plowing doesn't count. But when the crisis comes, it says, you know, the the spirit came upon Saul, and he responds like the judges did before him, by calling out the armed men of the community. And he makes a forced march through the night and surprises the Ammonite camp at dawn, and totally decimates them. This is why the people wanted the king in the first place, if you remember. This is why people wanted the king in the first place. They wanted someone who would always be available to them to lead them in battle against their enemies. That's specifically what they wanted the king for. Um, rather than waiting around for, for God to raise up a judge, they wanted someone who would always be available as a military commander. And Saul has just shown that he now fits the bill. He started to do kingly things. So now finally, after all this, he is actually king. Uh, chapter 11, verse 12. The people then said to Samuel, Who was it that asked, Shall Saul reign over us? Turn these men over to us, so we may put them to death. But Paul said, Saul said, No one will be put to death today, for this day the Lord has rescued Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingship. So all the people went to Gilgal and made Saul king in the presence of the Lord. There they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord. And Saul and all the Israelites held a great celebration. So he'd been anointed by Samuel, chosen by Lot, proven himself on the battlefield. And now finally he is made king in the presence of the Lord and of the whole community. That's quite a journey. But it's similar to what will happen with David. He too will be secretly anointed by Samuel. He too will gather a group of people, a group of men around him, who will recognize his anointing and his leadership, even while others, including the current king, uh, think otherwise. He has various military victories in which he fulfills the role of a king in defending the people, even while Saul is still officially the king. Then after Saul's death, David is finally installed as king. Paul the Apostle has a secret call on the Damascus roads. He knows then that he's called to take the gospel to the Gentiles. But it's years before he's actually Barnabas goes from Antioch to Tarsus to bring Saul, Paul, whatever, to join the leadership team in Antioch. And although we don't have any details of what he did in Antioch, I suspect it was there that he proved himself in ministry because in Acts 13, he is singled out along with Barnabas for the work that he's called to all those years ago. We, leave, we live in a global instant culture where everything has to be done now, where patience And faithfulness and perseverance in small things are not valued as they should be. Where it's, if something takes time to to develop, it's seen as a problem because we want everything to happen now. You know, everything's instant. But it takes time to make a king, it takes time to make any kind of leader. It takes time to make a leader in the church. Now, I don't pretend to be in the same class as any of these biblical heroes, but I am suggesting that what happened with Saul and David and Paul is a common way in which God works in people's lives. So let me tell you a little bit of my story. In 2015, Marilyn and I were in Antalya for some training. We were working in Afghanistan at the time. Marilyn was getting input on training peer support workers. I was in a hostage and crisis response workshop, workshop uh, and we both attended a member care consultation. We were just getting on with life. We were getting training to equip us better to do our work in Kabul. Then one day we were walking along the cliffs, um, the top of the cliffs over by Lower, D- Lower Duden Falls, and we both turned to each other and almost pretty much simultaneously said, I think we're going to end up working here. That was it. That was it. That, nothing more, just a sense that somehow or other Antalya lay in our future. We talked a bit about what that might look like. I was pastoring in Kabul, so maybe pastoring, but the church had just called a new pastor at that point. Marilyn is a counsellor. So maybe on staff at Olive Tree? But her license had lapsed while we were in Kabul and it would have taken five years in Canada to get it reinstated. She'd have to start again from scratch. Then John and Becky Leverington asked us to run a guest house for Olive Tree. Sure, we can do that. Um, So in 2017, that's what we came to do. Because you know and so we we got we came to start a a guest house and we got involved in the church because that's what you do uh, uh I was leading worship on a regular basis and preaching a couple of times then in two thousand and nineteen, I was invited to join the interim pastoral team i had actually by that time i had no ambitions to be pastor I was rather enjoying just you know semi retirement <laughs> um running a you know helping you know running a guest house and stuff like that. Um, But more and more people in the congregation kept saying that I should add my name to the list um, with the search committee. So I did. Someone actually told me a couple of weeks ago, um, I don't know how it came up in conversation, that um, the reason they they, uh, thought I should become pastor was because I was doing pastory things. So in October 2019, about four and a half years after God's secret call to us on top of the cliffs, I was installed as pastor of SBUC. I'm not suggesting that this is the only way to be called to ministry. Most pastors are unknown to their congregations when they come to candidate, and um, In fact, other pastors are a little shocked when I tell them that that's never been the case with me. I've always been like a known entity in the congregations that have called me to to pastor. What I am saying is that God called Saul in the midst of his everyday life and then confirmed that call through the community that he was a part of. And I believe that Scripture gives us models for the way that God works or how he might work. I'm always, you know, always cautious about saying God must work this way because he's God, right? Um, He can work however he likes. A couple of weeks ago, uh, I was visiting with someone who I hadn't seen in, oh, I don't know, um, 20 years. Um, And... uh, And he was telling me about the number of people he knows who had become Christians while they were high on acid. And his comment was, if God had asked my opinion about that approach, I would have advised him against it. (laughs) But here these people are, still strong Christians decades later. He's God. He can do what he wants, okay? Okay. But the models in Scripture are there for us to learn from. And there are enough parallels to Saul's process for me to recommend it as a way to test if God is calling you to something new in your life. Do you sense that God might be leading you in a new direction? One that you've actually never considered before? Has the Lord opened up opportunities for you? For you to serve in ways or in places that feed into that leading? And is the community that you're a part of, whether here at SPUC or your home community in your home country, is that community supportive of what you feel God calling you to do? If all those things are true, then it's quite possible that God is leading you into something new. And it's quite possible that, like Saul, you find that a bit scary. And you'd rather hide among the baggage or go off and do some ploughing in the field or whatever it is that feels nice and secure and predictable for you. But if you do that, you'll miss what God has for you. And you'll be missed, and you'll miss being used by God to set people free. And that would be a great shame, both for you and for those the Lord would touch through your life. There's nothing wrong with being a little bit, you know, scared when God calls you into ministry, when God calls you into something new. Um, that's a good, not a bad response. Um, there's nothing wrong with, you know, feeling that you're inadequate because you are. <laughs> we all are inadequate for whatever God calls us to, but He is sufficient, as He poured out His Spirit upon Saul at the beginning of His, 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 uh, his rule, as He used David and Paul the Apostle and so many others. You know, we are all inadequate but we shouldn't allow our sense of inadequacy to stop us from following the call of God upon our lives. So once again, if you feel that God is leading you into something new and opportunities are coming your way to to operate in those things, and those around you are affirming that kind of new thing in your life, then maybe God, probably God is calling you into something, some new ministry, some new area of endeavor. And your place is to say, who am I? And yet in the midst of that, also to trust God. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we thank you that you Use us. That's pretty amazing, actually. Um, that in the midst of our weakness and our um, lack of, uh, in many cases, lack of of belief in ourselves, you believe in us, and you call us. You call us, Lord, as you called Saul to lead his people or David, or Paul to to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, or whatever it is, Lord. You call us, and in the call, you equip us, Lord, and we thank you for that, that you don't call us and then leave, leave us hanging, that in the midst of the call, you equip us. So, Lord, I just want to pray for anybody in this room this morning, who is struggling with the idea that you might be calling them into something different, something new. Lord, would you give them confidence, not in themselves, but confidence that he who calls is able to equip. Lord, that you would enable them to step out in faith to do what you're calling them to. Lord, we want to pray also for the world around us, particularly in Ukraine, as the battle in the east, battles in the east, continue to, to rage and people are dying. Lord, we pray for an end to this war. Lord, that lives on both sides would be spared. Lord, we pray that you would, yeah, make a way forward for peace and justice in this place. Lord, we continue to pray for the victims of the earthquake in the east. Um, Lord, thank you for the way in which your church has responded. Thank you, Lord, for the, uh, the, the expression of your compassion that is being made through your people. I pray, Lord, for all those working out there uh, that you would um, equip them to do what you've called them to, to serve the, the survivors, to feed thousands of people, to build shelters, and still in the midst of that, Lord, to rejoice in your grace towards them. And that that might, even in the midst of great sorrow, people's faith and trust in you might shine through and you'd be glorified and people would be drawn to you. Pray for those who have come to Antalya. Pray that you would um, care for them and that your church here would also be involved in that, Lord. Pray for the uh, Ukrainian orphans who continue to need our help and support. Lord, Yeah, there's so much going on around us. Next door in Greece, the huge train crash. Pray for those who have lost loved ones. In Israel, the violence between Palestine and Israel. Lord, we pray for them, for that to subside as well and that there be peace there. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you use your people carry out your will in the world. And if there's anything that you're calling any of us to do in response to these things I've prayed for, Lord, I pray that we would have open ears and open hearts to do what you call us to do. In your name we pray. Amen.